The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Our book for today is Leviticus, a very appropriate book in God's providence. We didn't plan this, but Leviticus, if you were to sum it up, let's say in one word, what would you say uh, its major emphasis is? And you could be right with a couple of different words in this case. Instruction on, on how, to, how to, the priesthood, it gives instructions on everything. Okay, so it does do that, but what, what one word would uh, encapsulate kind of the major theme of the book? Sacrifice. Okay, sacrifice would be certainly a good candidate. Holiness. Holiness would be the other one. So both of those are major themes in this book. Uh, when we say sacrifice, we're talking about making atonement for sin, and that is very serious instruction in the book of Leviticus, particularly substitutionary atonement, right? It's not the sinner that gets sacrificed. Who is it in Leviticus? It's the animals. Now, that was the procedure, and that was the means by which God made atonement for sin in this period of time with the nation of Israel. It was real forgiveness. It was real atonement. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, and particularly the book of Hebrews, we come to understand that it didn't completely deal with sin. Only the sacrifice of Christ could do that. But when the, when the worshiper in the Old Testament context came and brought his sacrifice in faith and in obedience to the instruction that he was given, God forgave his sin. He was accepted before God. That's a very important uh, truth in the book of Leviticus. Now, the book takes place uh, over the period of about a month at, down at Mount Sinai. I remember when we started Exodus, we were up here in the land of Goshen. Over the first 18 chapters, God delivers Egypt, Israel from Egyptian bondage through his servant Moses. He brings them down, and they make like four different stopping points along the way. But they end up down here at Mount Sinai, and the end of Exodus is describing uh, the construction of the tabernacle. Well, the way that we know Leviticus takes place over about approximately a month's period is, according to Exodus 40:17, that tabernacle was constructed, constructed one year after the first Passover. It says the first month of the second year, and the second year and every other subsequent year is dated with the Passover being the, the anchor point. The, that would be the first year. The first month of the second year on the first day of the month. And then <clears throat> the book that's after Leviticus, Numbers 1-1, begins on the first day of the second month. So that's how we arrive at the fact that Leviticus takes place and the events of Leviticus take place over a period of about 30 days at Mount Sinai. We looked at the tabernacle in our study of Exodus. This is the setting in which this sacrificial system takes place. We have the high priest here in his very special garments. Uh, we're going to see that when the high priest goes into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, he actually takes these garments off. He puts on the garments of a regular priest. He has to make atonement for himself first. We have the... <clears throat> altar out here upon which the sacrifices would have been made. We have the brazen laver here, which the animals would have been washed first. As you read through Leviticus, you see that 
the person who brought the animal, the worshiper who's making sacrifice, uh, participated. He helped um, with the sacrifice of the animal himself, and the priest helped him. But they washed the animal in the laver. They, at times, anointed this brazen altar. As you get inside the tabernacle, we see, especially on the Day of Atonement, that the priest brings blood inside to the most holy place and puts it on the Ark of the Covenant. He also, at a certain point, uh, puts blood on the altar on the outside. But this is the interior also where the priest regularly maintained the tabernacle service, right? They kept the showbread. They changed it out every week. They were able to eat of that bread. They also maintained the light of the seven-stem candelabra, the menorah. But this is a good picture to have in your mind as you read through the book of Leviticus. All right, we're going to talk about the structure some. And structure, I'm, I'm basically just talking about an outline. And I'm trying to make the outline of these books basic enough to where you can kind of think through them again. I hope that's the case for Genesis and Exodus that we've already covered. Think about Exodus, the first 18 chapters is God's delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage through Moses and bringing them down to Sinai. How would you describe the chapters 19 through 40 of the book of Exodus? Excellent. And particularly entering into the Mosaic Covenant with God, which is that instruction, that law, 19 through 24, construction of the tabernacle. He said, say it again loud, Isaiah. Like um, their instruction at Mount Sinai through Moses. So 19 through 24 of Exodus is the covenant, God entering into covenant with Israel, his providing them that covenant constitution for the nation and also the construction of the tabernacle through which they'll observe the covenant. So for Leviticus, we're going to divide it up into two main sections as well. Israel's acceptable approach to God through sacrifices in chapters 1 through 10, and then Israel's walk with God in fellowship, and particularly in holiness in 11 through 27. And we're going to expand both of those. The first one only has two subsections, the offerings and their regulations in 1 through 7, and then the consecration and duties of the priests in 8 through 10. You know, the, the name Leviticus is a bit of a misnomer. It's, that name means pertaining to the Levites. This is more specifically the priest uh, manual, if you will, on worship. Now, the priests were of the tribe of Levi, and they were, had to be direct descendants of Aaron. So just keep that in mind. Uh, it's, a, it's a little... It deals more with what the priest is to do than the Levites more generally. Israel's walk with God in fellowship. I, I should also add, uh, the priests had an extremely important role. They were mediators between God and the people. They had a responsibility to be holy and to inculcate holiness, not only through uh, the sacrificial system, but also through carefully teaching the law of God. And, you know, no organization rises above its own leadership. If the priests kind of get off-center or off-kilter, then the people are going to do that as well. That would be true for both the kings and the priest. The second section, 11 through 27, uh, we've, I put it all up here so you can see it on one slide. We'll walk through it more carefully one section at a time. A lot of emphasis on 
the holy versus the common or profane, clean versus unclean. Again, as Andre mentioned, instructions on how the sacrifices were to be offered and even the procedure for how the priests were to be prepared to offer the sacrifices. 23 through 25 is a description of the festivals that God's people were to observe. And we talked about these last week. They had both an agricultural relationship with the harvest and the recognition that God had uh, done what he had done in providing for his people, but also uh, remembrance, theological remembrance of what he had done already for them in bringing them out of Egyptian bondage. Of course, Leviticus 26 is a key chapter in the book. Uh, it summarizes the essentials of the law. It promises blessing for covenant obedience. It promises discipline for covenant disobedience. It even looks at a future day after that discipline and after the ultimate discipline of being taken out of the land to restoration back to the land. It really lays out the storyline of the whole Old Testament. Okay, let's go through this. And we're, we're doing this at a very high level. Um, if you have questions, I can try to address those probably after. I'm going to try to get through everything that we want to talk about first this morning but some of these you might have questions about more individually and we can talk about those on an individual basis first is the offerings and their regulations there are different kinds of offerings the burn offering was the to provide acceptance for the worshiper in general obviously there's a strong emphasis on the fact that God is holy and his people are not they're by nature sinners and they have to have an atonement made for them even to approach God. So on the one hand, God is approachable. I mean, he's designed the system so they can come and approach him and worship. On the other hand, he's so completely and utterly holy and separate from his people that, you know, it's hard for us to get our, our heads around that to some degree. But that's still true today. God is holy. He's without sin. He dwells in unapproachable light. He doesn't even tempt others to sin. And we're still sinners, even as those who have put our faith in Christ. We still have to confess our sins and acknowledge those before God. The burnt offering was, again, substitutionary in nature. It wasn't the sinner that was burned or put to death. It was an animal that he brought. And there were uh, different kinds of animals could be brought, depending on mostly on the financial condition of the person that was bringing them. If you look in Leviticus 1, it talks about the fact that you could bring it from the herd, that would be a bullock, a young bull. You could bring it from the flock, which would be either a lamb or a goat. Or if you couldn't afford either one of those, you could bring a bird as a sacrifice. They were all for the same offering. Um, and they were for, again, the, the general acceptance of the worshiper. There was also a meal or grain offering. This was a burnt grain offering that memorialized the worshiper before the Lord. You have this concept in a couple of cases, both with this burnt meal offering and with the incense inside of the tabernacle where the smoke rises up to God and there's both this idea of it being a pleasing fragrance to the Lord through the obedience of his people and also just the idea of this offering reaching up to him kind of vaporizing and going up to him some of this is not as clear on this offering, what the exact significance is. Some say it's to express thankfulness and dedication to God. 
peace offering, certain animal parts were consumed on the altar. And again, there's some distinction between these as to how the animal is to be handled. Sometimes the priests eat parts of the animal. And again, that would be their participating in the Lord's table, as it were, in the Old Testament sense, uh, both eating the showbread and eating the offerings that were brought by the people. It was a means, remember, they don't have a land allotment like the other tribes will have. So it was a means by which the priests were sustained. This offering expressed the joy of fellowship with the Lord. And then there was a sin offering, again, made on behalf of individuals or for the assembly as a whole. And that's what took place on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was one day out of the year. At the end of their year, the high priest went inside the most holy place. He was the only one in the tabernacle. And this is spelled out in Leviticus chapter 16. It's really quite detailed as to... You know, he, he offers, uh, he sacrifices a couple of animals. He also has one goat where he comes back outside. He lays his hands on the goat, and there's a transference of the sins of the people to that goat. And it's what we now refer to as a scapegoat in the sense of it's sent away into the wilderness, symbolizing the bearing of the people's sin away into the wilderness and, and not to be remembered by the Lord anymore. Of course, the sin offering required an animal without defect. It was sprinkled on the altar, part of the sacrifice that was offered on the altar, and part burned outside the camp. Then we had a trespass or guilt offering, which was very similar to the sin offering, but its primary difference was there was some restitution required, whether to your fellow man, something you had taken from him and had to be restored, or something perhaps that you had withheld from God, something that you should have given to God and didn't. So that's, that's a very high overview of the offerings. Uh, again, if, if you want to delve into those in a more thorough way, I can recommend some resources to you. Uh, we're just trying to get the big picture flow of the book here. Secondly was the consecration and duties of the priest. In chapter 8 through 10, after the tabernacle was completed, after Aaron and his sons were set apart as priests in chapter 8, we have the, uh, that process taking about one week, and Aaron offers the first offerings, the very first offerings on the altar that had been uh, built. And then we have uh, the first sign of the cost of disobedience. Nadab and Abihu were two of Aaron's original sons. The others were Eleazar and Ithamar. Let's read a little bit from uh, Leviticus 10 to see what happens in this case. Excuse me. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. Now, that strange fire is kind of an interpretive question. What exactly does that mean? And what are the options from what you know already? Unauthorized or it was part of the heathen practices. Okay, unauthorized, not coming from the right place, which probably refers to the altar outside the camp, and therefore disobedient, right? They're not doing it. That's the main thing. They're not doing it as prescribed. And what happens? It, it, this was strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. That shows the violation. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, you can imagine. This is the very first 
at least sons of the high priest, and they're consumed by fire. So uh, it's yet another way that God makes very clear that he's serious about this. He's serious about obedience in general. He's serious in particular that his leaders pay attention to what he says. Now there's another interpretation that's talked about in this connection, and that is that these fellows might have been intoxicated. And the reason they say that is a verse later in chapter 10 that says this, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So people make a connection with that, with the fact or the possibility that Nadab and Abihu were drunk. I don't think that connection is that strong, but I'm just letting you know that that's another possibility. I think the main thing is that they didn't offer fire the way that God prescribed for them to offer it. All right, so let's continue now in 11 through 27 and just run through, again, blocks of material and the different things that they deal with here. Uh, 11 through 15 describe clean versus unclean. Now, with what sense, in what sense are those chapters talking about? What is clean versus unclean? Okay, so I would see a little bit of a distinction between holy and common. I think that's what you're describing. Clean versus unclean wasn't always a sin issue, to be sure, right? Can you think of an example of somebody entering into a state of uncleanness where they had not sinned? Somebody with leprosy? Okay, so leprosy uh, wouldn't necessarily be brought on by sin, and yet they would be unclean and Leviticus actually deals with the procedure of dealing with those kinds of diseases. Having a baby baby brought you into a state of uncleanness. What else? Menstrual cycle for a woman. Even touching a dead body could bring you into a state of uncleanness. So I think the best way to understand this concept, that even though it's not a moral sin to do some of these things that we've just mentioned, it does have the idea of the sin nature, and even having a baby of transmitting sin to another generation. We think of having a baby as a gift from the Lord and a good thing, and it is. But at the same time, there's still that cognizance of that sin being passed down to another generation. You know, the other thing that's very dominant in this section for clean versus unclean is animals. Animals, again, that are declared by God as clean or unclean, and they could only eat the clean animals, right? What's the purpose of that? And, and again, there's multiple interpretations as to what that might be. Um, it could set them apart from other nations. I think that's the best one. If you heard Silas, what that did was prescribe what Israel could eat and what they couldn't, and that would set them apart and make it harder for them to mix with the other <laughs> nations. We're going to see a passage in Leviticus that pretty much says that. Um, you know, some of those things you wonder, uh, why, why would this be okay to eat? Why would this not be? And certainly by the time you get to the New Testament, there's a point at which Jesus declares all foods clean. But at this point, in his economy and with his people, 
certain things were allowed to be eaten and certain were not. And again, a, a lot of it has to do with keeping them distinct as a people. So animals we talked about, the uncleanness of childbearing instructions on circumcision, circumcision are in chapter 12. Circumcision was vitally important. It was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. A person who was not circumcised was liable to being cut off from his people. We have instructions for the priest to deal with various skin diseases that we mentioned and bodily discharges in 13 through 15. Again, those brought those, a person into a state of uncleanness. If you think about it, everybody over the course of their lives was going to be unclean at some point or another. And it is, it's more than just sin. You know, every person is going to be tainted by sin as well. But this is a different kind of thing. You could have a child, which is not a sinful act, and be in a state of uncleanness, and you had, to, you had to bring the appropriate sacrifice to make atonement for that. We do have the instruction for the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. We've kind of talked about that one already as well. It was an extremely significant day for the nation of Israel. Uh, it was a day very similar to what we celebrate today uh, with, well, with Good Friday first and then with the resurrection of Christ. This was a day in which the whole nation felt the relief of their guilt. They felt that their uh, sin had been atoned for, and they felt genuine forgiveness. Now, this brings up this issue, and for whatever reason, I've had discussions with people very recently about it, as to whether or not these sacrifices pointed forward to Christ, and that somehow the Old Testament worshiper knew that these pointed forward to a future redeemer who would die for the sins of the world. I don't see anything like that in Leviticus. Now, I would, con I would agree that this sacrificial system reminded people of their sinfulness. It certainly reminded them that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So that by the time you get to the New Testament period, and by the time you have the sacrifice of Christ, they should have understood. This system would have prepared them for that day. But that's a different thing from seeing, okay, I'm coming as an Old Testament worshiper. I'm bringing the appropriate sacrifice. I know that one day this system is going to be done away with, and there's going to be a, a greater sacrifice. It's easy for us to say that looking as we do from this side of the cross. You have to put yourself in the shoes of that Old Testament worshiper. For them, this system was given to them by God. This was the means by which they maintained their fellowship with God. He'd already redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt, but this was the system that they were responsible to obey. Kathleen. Yeah. I wouldn't say that they, the good guys got virtuous, but I think that they would feel like they were pleasing God. And it felt good. It feels good to please God. It does feel good to please God. I would not say that they're, and you may not be saying this either, I don't think they're earning their salvation no. or trying to. But today, a lot of people prefer, instead of salvation by faith because of the grace of God, they prefer to attach something to it than they do. And then it makes them feel better, like, 
it's just it's in nature. I just think it's easier we somehow get to do something to say. So <clears throat> I want to take issue with you a little bit here just to generate some discussion. Are works important for us today? Yeah. And how are those works related to faith? They are evidence of our faith. That's exactly what's happening here. Right. The, and well, and that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Okay. So I just don't want us to see this as a system somehow different where they were earning their salvation or doing things that they could do. God has already redeemed them by his grace, right? They, they're just as much objects of grace in the Old Testament time period as we are today. Okay, but Christians get that, right? We, we, our faith and our love for God and our works for him are driven by what he's already done for us. And that's the way it was for these guys as well, the ones that did it the right way. As now, individual. Yes. As a nation, that was the witness to the other nation. That's right. That these, these Jews keep doing this to this God. They don't, they don't you know, yeah, separate I, themselves from your common stuff. I mean, what's the big deal? This, everybody eats this. Everybody does this. And they're being like, no, my God doesn't want me to do that. Plus... I mean, you think about the context here. God had recently demonstrated tremendous power over the strongest nation in the world at the time through these works. And that word got around. I mean, they're, they're getting reports back on that word as they're making their way up to the promised land. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I know you mentioned it makes us feel good, and that's not a bad thing. But the most important thing is it's what God wants, right? It's obedience. Yeah. Now, I know you want this and I'm doing it, and so I know you're pleased. But we have to also acknowledge, on the other hand, and it's not so explicit here in Leviticus, is that an Old Testament saint could send it up, let's say, during the week, and then decide, okay, I'll, I'll do the sacrifice thing just to be on the safe side. That was wrong. He. God was not pleased with that. So in other words, you could bring a sacrifice with a wrong heart attitude and it wouldn't be pleasing to God. It could have been what happened with those well, yeah, they, they were doing on the one hand what they were supposed to do in having fire in their pans, but they brought the wrong fire. They weren't paying attention to what God wanted closely enough. And then, like you said, there was discipline as a result. Okay, good. If you haven't read through all of, the, of Leviticus, read through chapter 16. Uh, again, there's multiple animals sacrificed. There's things that are done with the blood. But there's also this one 
goat designated by Lot that has the hands placed on it as a symbol of the sins of the people being transferred and his being led away to his death implicitly um, in the wilderness. 17 is another uh, chapter on the proper procedure for sacrifices, so a re-emphasis on that. 18 is on prohibited sexual practices, and this would include things like adultery, uh, like bestiality, like homosexuality, uh, even like incest. You know, we live in a world and a culture today that's lost any sense of shame in this area, and this is laid out really early in God's Word. Um, they lived in a culture where it was the same way. All the other nations were practicing these things. God says, it's not, it's not you. You're not going to do this. So he lays those out very explicitly in chapter 18. There's instruction on dealing with neighbors and strangers within the land of Israel in 19. What's the connection here? Uh, what's the basis upon which they were to treat their neighbors and strangers in particular? Exactly. So I want to read a section out of this because I think it's really good. Uh, this has application again for us today in the way that we treat others, not just fellow believers, but unbelievers as well. And this is in chapter 19, beginning in verse 10. We'll read 10 through 18. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So the idea here was you don't maximize the harvest by getting every corner in your field you leave some and you leave some for people that don't have land or are in a very needy situation so they can come in and glean that is get what was left behind you shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God I am the Lord we're going to see that that statement is a dominant theme in the book of Leviticus, just reminding them of where this instruction comes from. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. We heard that recently from another source. James. James echoes that in his letter, particularly as he gets after the rich. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall rever your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. Another theme in James. But you're to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You're not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may... So, you know, that goes to what the Lord is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, too. It wasn't just there that he said that hatred was a bad thing and basically equivalent to murder, but here in the original law as well. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We have penalties for breaking, well, penalties spelled out for the breaking of various laws in chapter 20. We're going to look at several key verses in just a minute, and 20, 22 through 26 is a key passage in the book as a whole. It really just captures the essence of the whole book. 
You have the emphasis on the priest's necessity to be holy. Again, I mentioned that before. They're leading the people. If they're not holy, the people are certainly not going to be holy. And so there's just a real emphasis on the importance of their role as God's mediators. Let's read a little bit of that in 21 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people. Now, it goes on to make some exceptions for really close family, but they uh, were to be very careful about not defiling themselves, even for a dead person. Verse 6 explains why. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord. That's their role. The bread of their God, so they shall be holy. Then we have the feast of God's people in 23 through 25. Again, we're going to walk through these at a very high level. I did send out, David sent out for me uh, a description of these. One is a chart from Dr. Barrick that lays out the different feasts and their purpose and even makes a connection with what's going on in the New Testament. The other is from uh, International Bible, ISBE, what's that stand for? Encyclopedia. International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. And it just gives a really brief summary of what the significance of each of the feasts are. First, we had the Sabbath day, which is strictly speaking not a feast, but it was a regular day of rest. People were to work six days and rest on the seventh. They're following God's pattern in the way that he created the universe in that way. And it was it was a real gift, right? I mean, to be, they had to work hard in those six days, but they, the seventh day was a day of rest and refreshment and reflection, I would say, on what God had done for them as a people. You also have other kinds of Sabbaths, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. You had spring festivals, which were in the first and third month of their calendars, and you see some different names for these months. One of them is because they come the Babylonian names that occurred after the exile, and the others are what are referred to as Canaanite names. Uh, so sometimes you have two different, well, virtually all of them, you have two different names for the same month. Passover and unleavened bread were connected. They both commemorated Israel's departure from Egypt. Passover remembering the fact that they had to sacrifice a lamb and put door on the blood post. Again, it was an act of obedience and faith in what God was commanding. And when they did that, the death angel passed over their home. Unleavened bread was a reminder of the haste with which they left Egypt and even of the hardships of that hurried flight. First fruits uh, is more of an agricultural festival, but again, connected theologically because God is the one that's providing the harvest, right? He's the one that provides the rains. He's the one that promised these agricultural blessings for obedience. So in first fruits, there was a wave offering of barley because it was harvested earlier than the wheat harvest was. And there was just a recognition. Hey, we have this already. We know that there's a further harvest to come. And we're expressing our thanksgiving to you for that. So it was a commemoration of God's promise of a fruitful land. Yes. Well, not at this point, right? Because they're they're doing they're 
In time, it happens certainly because that's where the temple is. Yes. That's right. Particularly for the three major festivals. That would be Passover, Unleavened Bread, and Tabernacles. I believe are the ones that they were most required for. The Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost, was a wave offering of two loaves of bread. Uh, in celebration of the wheat harvest, there were also animal sacrifices in conjunction with this feast. I'm going to let you just look at the chart to get further explanation of that. There's some speculation up to the other significance of, of that feast. I'll let you look at those on the, on the barracks chart in particular. Then there were fall festivals that occurred in the seventh month of the year. The Feast of Trumpets was uh, really a, a national proclamation, a national holiday. It seems to be in preparation for the Day of Atonement. And trumpets were a part of gathering the people for that. The Day of Atonement itself, we've already talked about, most important holiday in the year. I mean, you could arguably make that case. I suppose Passover is just as important, but it was the day for national cleansing. And it was a day where the people felt their guilt expiated and their relationship with God made right. It's not to say that they couldn't have that guilt expiated through the year with certain offerings, but... This was just a very significant day for them as a people. Feast of Booths commemorated what? The wilderness wanderings. The fact that they were in shelters as they traveled through the wilderness. And it also was, at the same time, uh, the completion of the harvest. This included not just barley and wheat, but also grapes and olives. And again, it was just... I talked about this one point uh, when I taught this before. In Russia, at September-October time frame, they celebrate harvest. And they don't do it because it's prescribed in these feasts, but they do it because during the summertime, the people, a lot of people live in apartment complexes and they live in the city. But in the summers, they go out to what are called dachas. And these are small plots of land that have very rustic houses, like a cabin on it that they live in through the summer, and they cultivate these vegetable gardens. And they, they're out there all summer. And it's a very different season of life for them through the year. But they make enough of those vegetables to carry them through the long winter, Nova Sibirsk in particular. They store the vegetables in these underground vaults so that they have them through the year. And I've heard people say that if they didn't have that fruitfulness, on top of the very measly salaries that they make through the year, they couldn't make it. They would starve. And so for them, harvest is a big deal. Uh, and they celebrate and give thanks to God for blessing their vegetable gardens, in essence. I think it's harder for us to appreciate because, you know, we need our vegetables. We run down to Kroger and get them. It's not that way there. And certainly in this case, it's just a recognition that, yes, these are material blessings, but they ultimately they come from God himself. And if he doesn't provide the necessary rains, we're not going to have the necessary harvest. And our obedience is tied to that blessing, or that blessing, rather, I should say, is tied to our obedience to his covenant and to his laws. Sabbath year, uh, every seven years, the people were to allow the land to rest. They were not to cultivate it. 
They had to trust that God would provide enough in the sixth year to carry them through the seventh year. And that's not only just a good agricultural practice. It helps keep the land productive. It was a command by God, and it was a means of um, his giving them rest and also, in a sense, testing their obedience. Remember, they end up being taken out of the land for 490 years, and there's a tie made to the fact that they didn't observe the seventh year of land rest like they were supposed to. So those 70 years, actually that was the period of the exile, that allowed that, uh, that land to get its sufficient rest that it didn't get before. Also in the year of Jubilee, every after 49 years was the 50th year. That was the year of Jubilee, and that was a year of remission of debts. Uh, if you were in such financial straits that you had to sell yourself as a servant to another family, even to a fellow Israelite family, in the year of Jubilee, that was you were returned back to freedom. And if you had to sell your land, that land was returned back to you. So it was really a great year of celebration of even if you went through difficulty over the course of your life, that some of that would come back to you. We've talked a lot. Yes, Kevin. Yeah, I think it was permanent. Yeah. So Leviticus 26 is a highlight of the book. Uh, even if you're not crazy about all the other things that are spelled out in Leviticus, 26 is a really exciting chapter. And I, went, I know we've talked about that a lot. Uh, the fact that we've already looked through or gone through the covenants makes a big difference here. I do want to just, in summary fashion, remind you of the content of Leviticus 26. First, there's a summary of the law and its requirements. Very compact summary. You shall not make for yourselves idols. So God was to be the only thing, the only person they worshipped. Nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar. Nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. I am the Lord your God. There's only one true God. You're to worship me accordingly. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So keeping the Sabbath really was a way of saying, observe my law, keep covenant with me. Reverence my sanctuary in a way that Nadab and Abihu did not do. Otherwise, you're going to suffer the consequences. Then in 3 through 13, there's promises for blessing if they do those things. And those include agricultural prosperity, peace with the other nations, Population, they would be fruitful and multiply, both as human beings and their flocks. And most importantly, God's presence would dwell among them. Uh, he's going to be over the mercy seat of the tabernacle. Those blessings conclude with, uh, in Leviticus 26, 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you should not be their slaves I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So he's reminding them of the purchase that he has on them, the, that, the fact that he's the one that delivered them and they belong to him. Similarly, in 14 through 33, there are promises of punishment for disobedience. 
physical debilitation and defeat at the hands of their enemies, drought, which would not bring agricultural prosperity, devastation by wild beasts and by siege, and ultimately deportation out of the land. After all those are laid out, we get to these verses at the end of Leviticus 26. Uh, 40 through 46 is really the promise of future restoration, but we'll read 44 and 45. In spite of this, when they, are, when they, these people, his people, are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. That is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. If you read earlier, in ver like in verses 40 through 42, there's a re there is another reference to the Abrahamic Covenant. So it keeps them tied together as we have. All right, so having gone through those, and we've already touched on them some, what are the major themes in the book of Leviticus? Holiness, the fact that they're to be separate from the other nations, uh, the fact that God himself is holy and they're to be holy just as he is holy. Sacrifice for sinfulness. Sacrifice for sinfulness and the sacrificial system in general. Priesthood. Priesthood. Yeah. I mean, this is the book that gives the priests the most detailed destruction instructions on what they're to do. Think of any others? Clean and unclean is another theme. So <clears throat> let's go through the ones that I have here. The presence of the Lord. Even in some of the passages that we read, we have this emphasis, I am the Lord your God, just a reminder. You can see all the different chapters that that phrase appears in. And being before the Lord. Keep in mind that this is God's presence with them in the tabernacle. So they're doing these things to be accepted by him in his very presence. Holiness, we said, and we're contrasting the holy with the common or the profane. The holy includes the Lord himself, Yahweh. It includes the people, the nation of Israel. It includes things. There were things that were holy things, right, and not to be profaned. Um, Leviticus 2.3 says, The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. The times, those feasts that we walked through were considered holy convocations. They were holy times designated by the Lord and they were not to be violated. Yes, I mean holiness has the idea of being set apart. Consecrated. And it's in contrast to the common or the profane. Now when I say profane, I don't mean uh, like profane language. I mean common everyday use. There was a difference between a common water pot and the labor of the Lord in the sanctuary. Nothing wrong with common things, but the thing that you didn't want to do was take something that was holy and profane it or make it common. Uh, that, that brought the Lord's wrath. Let's look at that in Leviticus 19. When you offer a 
sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it's an offense. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. So the, really the idea of profaning something is not doing it in accordance with the way that the Lord prescribed. Matt mentioned we had the clean and the unclean. And we have the sacrificial system that's spelled out in detail in 1 through 7 and in 16, also with the priests in 8 through 10. So I just, a couple of key verses that I think encapsulate the, the book as a whole. The Lord says in 11.44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Just as I am set apart, and in a much greater way than you are, you too be holy. You too be set apart from the sins of the nations and just from them in general as people. This idea of blood sacrifice as necessary to atone for sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Notice, you don't already... You're not only making atonement for your souls when you bring these offerings, but the blood was also used to cleanse the altar itself, and to cleanse the uh, mercy seat inside the holiest place. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And certainly, again, that prepares the way for us to understand the sacrifice of Christ and that being the ultimate sacrifice, the only one that could fully atone, not just... For, for the sins of the world, not just the sins of Israel. And then this is the passage I referenced earlier, chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. You're therefore to keep my statutes and my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I'm bringing you to live will not spew you out. That's that promise of discipline for disobedience for being cast out of the land. Moreover, you should not follow the customs of the nations, which I shall drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it as a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember, that was all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. God said he was going to use Israel to drive out the Canaanites and to discipline them for their sin, and he was going to give Israel their land. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples, you are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by an animal, that is, by partaking of something that was unclean, or by bird, or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Again, a very strong language about the relationship that God has with Israel, but they're going to be the means by which the other nations are drawn to their God. So it's not exclusively Israel, but they still have a very prominent place in the plan. So if we try to summarize this and put it in a one-sentence statement, Yahweh gave instruction that enabled him as a holy God to live among his people. He, he had to have this done because his holiness required it. 
and enabled his people to have fellowship with him. That's what they did through these various offerings and through the celebration of the feast as well. The book, as we've noted, had special relevance for the priest as a manual on guiding Israel in their worship. All right, that's Leviticus. Next week, we'll look at the book of Numbers, and we'll be on the move again at that point. We'll set out from Mount Sinai and start making our way up towards the Promised Land and, then, and look at Israel's wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers. So if you have time this week, read through the book of Numbers, at least at a high level. Read Benware's book. And again, try to get the, the, the big parts of the book to where you could think through it and what's going on. I'm not expecting you to be able to recite numbers, but it'd be nice to be able to know the different sections and after we're done, especially with the book of Deuteronomy, be able to think your way and talk your way through the Pentateuch as a whole. All right, we've gone along this morning, but I appreciate your paying attention and staying with me. And... Uh, Really just enjoyed the time we had today as celebrate Resurrection Sunday together. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had together. It's always refreshing for us to come together and hear from your word. Be reminded of, in what we just studied, your holiness, your separateness, the fact that you're completely without sin and dwell in unapproachable light and that you must punish sin. It's part of your character. At the same time, by your mercy and your compassions, you allow us to be able to uh, rec be reconciled to you through blood atonement. In the Old Testament economy, it was these animal sacrifices and other means of offerings that made the worshiper acceptable to you. For us today, it's through the shed blood of Christ. That's what we celebrate this weekend. That's the only way by which any human being can be reconciled to you is through the completed work of Christ. We thank you for that atonement. We thank you for what it does for us now in expiating our guilt and restoring our relationship with you. We thank you for what it will consummate in with the return of Christ and the full glorification of our bodies, the full accomplishment of redemption at that point. We thank you that the, knowing those truths in our lives today makes a difference in how we live and how we deal with difficulty and, and what we look forward to. Help us this week to be faithful in our walks with you. Uh, just as you commanded the Old Testament saints to be holy, help us to be holy and to honor you through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.